The following audio is presented by Grace Church. For more about us, visit discovergrace.com, or you can download our free app by searching Grace Church Orlando on your phone or tablet. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Amen. Hey, it's great to be back. I've been at Orlando campus the last two weeks because we didn't have service because the school shut us down. And so super, uh, super excited to be here. Y'all had Grant Nixon, who I heard killed it uh, a couple weeks ago and killed me all the way through the sermon. So I'm sure y'all enjoyed that, laughed it up. As a matter of fact, I was, I was preaching at Orlando on Sunday and he came and did announcements. And so he did announcements and I got benediction afterwards. So he got up and just roasted me for like five minutes. And I got up, did benediction. We left. I didn't say anything. I didn't even hear it. I didn't say anything. And uh, Greg Register comes up to me. He goes to me and Grant. He goes, man, he goes, Grant, you were just tearing him down. But I was, he was like, but our camp's pastor, he's just, you know, spiritually mature. So he didn't say anything. And then Grant goes, or he didn't have anything. <laughs> right? I mean, just giving it to me. Love that guy. Love our model and how we can trade pastors and have different teaching. And, and we can actually go to a campus when our school is shut down. And so thankful for all those things. So today, I'm going to be talking about, uh, it's a really hot thing right now. A lot of people are engaged in it. A lot of people have taken this test. It's a personality test. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called the Enneagram. So it's, it's been hot for about a year or two. It's been a big deal. And so I want to give a little backdrop before I jump into this. I take this as a personality test, not as a spiritual guy. Okay, so if you go that way with it, you can go south. If you go for it to help you in how you have relationship with business and with one another, it's super helpful. So how many, how many of you in here have actually taken the test? I'm just curious. Okay, pretty good bit, pretty good bit. So here's the idea. It, it has nine different personalities. So let me say it a different way. There's nine different normals by which we see the world. That's what this test is helpful in. It helps you see that we all come from different frameworks, different lens through which we process things and we see things. So I'm going to run through this. Like I said, this isn't Bible, but I think it's helpful in how we deal with one another. So the first one, it's, it's done by numbers. And so the first one, a one, is someone who's a perfectionist. They like things neat and tidy. They're also the type of person that can help others improve their processes, their cues, what they do on a day in, day out. They can see something and go, that could be better. And here's the way it could be better. So they are moral, perfectionist, that type of person, very together. Second one is a helper or supportive. Uh, we got a guy shaking his hand back there. He's a number two. And uh, an advisor, someone who is helpful, is someone who in your organization, they get stuff done. They are always available to say, hey, how can I help you out? That's that type. Number three is the achiever or the successful one. It's the one who wants to win all the time. No matter what they're doing, they want to win. So they constantly driving the ball forward at their business. They're constantly trying to get things done. They're more about tasks than they are people on some level. They are relational though. So that's the three. The four is uh, the romantic individualist, someone who's very creative, who actually is very, uh, has very deep emotions and can draw very deep emotions from other people. And the four is actually, they say anyways, they say the four is the rarest person and the rarest type around. So there's the four. Number five is the investigative thinker. 
It's the skeptic. It's the person who honestly can devoid their emotions, can make critical decisions. So at game time, you want a five in the decision-making process. They can see the big picture and then go, all right, let's move here. So that's a five. The six is a guardian, a loyalist. It's someone who in your organization or in relationships, if, if you have a vision or a family dynamic or whatever, they're very loyal to the vision. They're, they're champions of the vision. And so that's, that's your loyalist. The seven is the entertaining optimist. They call it the enthusiast. It's the person who likes to have fun. As a matter of fact, their, their number one goal in life oftentimes is to have fun. And so they want to avoid pain. And so that's, that's the entertaining optimist. They're oftentimes very big picture. They see big picture everywhere they go. The eight is the challenger. It's the person who runs their own company. It's the person who has to be in charge. It's the person who has that type A driving, I'm in charge. Here's the vision. I don't care what everybody else says. We're going this way. So that's the eight. The nine is the peacemaker or the mediator. It's oftentimes the person who you want in your organization uh, to manage people because they understand and they see all the different types. They're able to walk through them and manage them well. So these are oftentimes great managers. So those are the nine kind of a rough run through of the personalities. So I want you to see this on a practical level. When it comes to conflict, when it comes to dealing with relationships and conflict, this is how it plays out. You can't read it, so I'm going to tell it to you. So the one, the reformer, the perfectionist says anger, no. Resentment, yes. So if that's you and you're like always the time that's your fault to, and you're, you resent people in conflict, that's typically a one. Now, obviously, let me say this. There's healthy versions of this. So it may be your fault too, but because you've been growing in Christ, resentment isn't the first go. You've learned how to adapt. But generally speaking, a one, resentment, not anger. Number two, the helper. What, me cause conflict? How can I help? What can I do, right? Like me? The third one, the achiever, don't waste my time with this. I'm moving forward. We're going to win today. I don't have time for you and all your drama and your emotions. We're going to win today, right? We're going to meet our quota. Number four, the romantic. Why'd you do this to me? Like, why? What what did I do? I don't understand. Okay, obviously these are negative. There's some great aspects to the four, okay? The five is no problem, just attached. So it's the person, people can be arguing, and they're like, I don't care. I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. I'm right here. We need to do this. This is where we need to go. Sometimes emotionless is the five. Number six, the loyalist. I didn't mean to cause any problems. I'm sorry. What can I do? How can I help? It's kind of like the helper in some ways. The seven, I'm out of here. I want to have fun. I don't want to feel pain. And so I am avoiding this conflict. We going hiking. Where are we going surfing? I mean, can we do something other than pee right here, right? I'm a seven, so I kind of get it. So eight, uh, anger is just energy. Like bring it on. Who wants to come and step up to the plate, right? That's the default of the eight. Now, obviously, like I said, you can be growing in godliness and not jump to immediate anger. But the eight, they say the underlying feeling can be anger at times. And so it just pops out as you're driving things forward, as you, they, they like control, right? So, and then the nine, I don't get angry. I'm just peaceful. I love everybody. Let's all get along, right? That's the peacemaker. 
So that's the idea. Now, if you're going, I'm not any of these, you're just lying to yourself, you know what I mean? So I get it, you're in denial. I don't know what makes that number for you, but, uh, but we're all in some sort of fashion like one of these. There's nine different normals. So here's the thing. What I want to do this morning is, is that based off this, I want you to see that the Bible actually teaches a worldview. The Bible teaches a lens through which we should process everyday life. And so this morning, we're going to see a passage in Acts 4. And we're going to see that in times of trouble, we should have a gospel-centered worldview. When you read this passage at first, if you were just reading through your Bible, you go, oh yeah, I know what this is about, but there's actually a backdrop to this that's deeper, that's saying, hey, you need to think this way. You need to see life this way. As a believer in Christ, you need to have this worldview as you face situations. So that's where we're headed. That's our big idea. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and following. So as you turn there, I want to give you a little background. Peter and John had just healed a man that had been crippled all his life, all the way up to age 40. Okay? And so they healed this guy. And all of a sudden, all this stuff starts happening. They, he gets saved. He starts shouting and telling everybody. The, the council, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're coming in. They're saying, he's talking about Jesus is the only way. We got to shut this down. And so they get Peter and John. They get them arrested. They go stand trial. It's overnight. And then they release them and they say to them, listen, we're going to release you, but you may no longer speak Jesus' name anymore. It's done. Let it go. You can go. So that's the backdrop. And that's where we're headed. So they're warned not to speak. So this morning, we're going to see how they respond. We're going to see this gospel-centered worldview. But what does that mean? I mean, what does a gospel-centered worldview look like? A gospel-centered worldview believes this. God's redemptive plan permeates every aspect of life. I'm going to say it again. A gospel-centered worldview believes God's redemptive plan permeates every aspect of life. Listen to this. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So I want to tell you about my weekend, Okay. This is last night. Trey's at a party. Y'all know Trey, the guy that does communion. He's at a party till 10 o'clock last night. I called him up and I said, hey man, I'm headed downtown. We're going to go to the bars and we're going we're gonna to share Christ with anybody that's interested. Obviously, people are going to be drunk. Obviously, there's going to be a lot going on, but we should head to this and go share Christ. And so we go out 10 o'clock at night. We're in downtown uh, Orlando. We're at the bars. We're talking to people. And in the midst of us hanging out and talking, this guy comes up to us who's homeless, who's walking with a cane, who's crippled on one foot. And he comes up to us and he goes, hey man, can I have some money? And me and Trey are, you know, checking our pockets. And I was thinking, I don't have any cash. Like, and Trey goes, I don't have any cash. And so we're talking to him and he goes, I was like, man, I'm so sorry. We don't have any cash. So I was like, can we pray for you though? Like, would you mind if we prayed for you and maybe prayed for your leg? And the guy goes, uh, okay, like, we'll do this. And so we start praying for him. We start asking that God would move in his life and, that, and that, you, that by the Holy Spirit that his leg would be healed. 
So we pray over him. The guy literally starts moving his foot, starts jumping up in the air, starts screaming to the top of his lungs. Now we're in a bar. We're covered up with people. He's screaming in the middle of the bar. I'm healed. I'm healed. This is crazy. And he bumps into four guys who are hammered out of their minds right behind him. Okay, and all of a sudden he bumps into them and they go, hey man, what's the problem? They push him and he gets mad. He pushes them back. A riot breaks out. Literally, they start swinging and punching and we're backing up like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Like, I cannot believe this is happening. And all of a sudden more people get involved and then some people come up and go, I heard that guy was saying he got healed. What's the deal? And we're like, yeah, do you want to know about Jesus? They end up getting saved. I mean, it's this crazy moment. We're like, what's going on? The cops show up and what happens? All the guys that have been fighting, they all go, what's going on? They all point to us and they go, it was because of them we started fighting. And we're like, what are you talking about? Are you serious right now? So we're like getting scared and anxious. They literally throw us into the police car, cuff us up. We're in jail all night. Listen, we're in jail all night. We wake up this morning. Somebody gets us out and I'm here to preach to tell you this message today. No, that didn't happen. Okay. But that's the picture here. Do y'all see it? Do you see it? Do you get it? Do you feel it? Right? Peter and John go and pray over a guy. They get healed. And then he jumps up, starts screaming. And everybody gets excited. They get thrown in jail. He shows up the next day on the Sabbath. And he says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Y'all still can't get over it. I get it. I get it. I want you to see it. I want you to be there, right? And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. This is beautiful. Think about this. They're all huddled up, probably on their hands and knees. They're pleading out to God. They just got arrested. And they're coming to the believers. And they're saying, we just got arrested. Here's what took place. Can you believe it? And then notice what they say. He prays this prayer. There's so much in here about their worldview, about the way they think, about their lens through which they process trouble, bad times, and everyday life. Listen to this. He prays, probably Peter, because he's the loud one, right? And said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Think about it. They're praying together, and Peter most likely quotes Psalm 2. He quotes Psalm 2. You through the Holy Spirit prophesied. Psalm 2 is looking forward to this day, that this would happen, that this would take place. Peter's saying, hey, Psalm 2 is taking place in our midst right now. That's what he's saying. And then he says this, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, think about it, the city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen to this verse, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what's taking place? Psalm 2. You showed up. You planned this. This was all a part of your plan. You knew it was coming. You knew it would be in jail. We knew that, that all these authorities would arrest us. We knew this was coming, according to Psalm 2. 
You see, they understood that God created everything. Verse 24. Isn't that interesting? He says, sovereign Lord, the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea. Why go to creation? Like they just got arrested and you're praying, God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea. What? What's that about? Like, why pray that? Why think that? Why is that their first go-to in their prayer? I mean, really, at what point is it important that God created everything? I mean, does it matter that God created everything in this instance when you hit trouble? When you've got times that things are bad, right? So I taught a, a class, just to give you a little picture. I taught a class at my former church called uh, Gospel-Centered Counseling. It was an introductory class. It wasn't like deep psychology and theology. It was a framework by which people could process their situation. I had parents, I had adults, I had all kinds of situations where somebody would come up to me and they would say, hey, listen, my son is saying that he really feels like a girl. And my son, my other son, he, he's struggling with pornography and I don't know what to do. I've got all these situations in my life. I'm facing all this stuff. I don't have a framework to work through this. Can you help us? Can you help us at least just have some pieces to put together of well, how does God fit into this? How does all this fit? It's so messed up and I don't know how to move the ball forward, right? And so I, I taught this class, like I said, introductory, but here's the framework. It's called a historical redemptive plan. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Notice they start with creation. Why does that matter? Why does that matter when we hit times of trouble? As I taught in the class, creation, there's a cosmos. Not, not earth, but cosmos. Cosmos means that there's a designed order to everything that we see. And so God created. He, he had a plan. He had a purpose. He had something that he was creating. He had something that he was driving and moving forward, right? And that it was good, that it was beautiful, that it was wonderful, that there was this garden. All of these things God intended to love us and to care for us. He created the heavens and the earth and the sea. But not only did he create the fall. Think about this framework in your life. As you look at pieces, as you put things together, as you hear stories, as you face difficulty, the fall. Adam and Eve were in this perfect creation. What did they do? They rebelled against God. They wanted to do their own thing. And they sinned and it brought death and brokenness and fallenness and everything in the world was broken thereafter. They were kicked out of the garden because they could no longer be in the sight of God in that way anymore. And so creation falls. So what about that story? What about that situation? What about that thing that's happening in your life? Oh yeah, the fall. Everything's broken because of sin, right? But there's a third piece, redemption. God didn't say, hey, man, really bad for y'all. You messed it up. I'm out. I'll see y'all. No, no. He had a plan, remember? And his plan was to send his son to live the life that you could never live, to be perfect, pure, holy, righteous, make perfect decisions, make, have patience where you lack, right? He came, lived the life that you could never live, died on a cross to pay what? The penalty of sin on our behalf. Literally assaging the wrath of God on us, for us. And you go, okay, Clint, like that's great. You know, creation, fall, 
redemption. But what about the fact that Jesus did come? He's changed my life. But what about the fact that people die? What about the fact that cancer? What about all this stuff that's so bad? What do you do with that? Oh yeah, restoration. Jesus is coming back. There's hope for your story. There's hope in the midst of your blight. There's hope always because there's another one coming. His name is Jesus. He's coming to redeem, to rescue, and to make all things right. He's going to take away the pain and the death and the sorrow and all of those things. And he's going to give it to us. We're going to have an eternity with him. You see the lens? You see that historical redemptive lens? When you face problems, when you face situations, you've got, oh yeah, creation. God has a purpose from the beginning. Right? So why do they go to creation? I think that's why. Because God created They also understood that God was in control of all things. Verse 24 and verse 28. He says, notice, listen to this, sovereign Lord. I mean, doesn't that sound redundant? Sovereign Lord, it's like saying to a kid, hey, he's happy, smiley. That's a cool, rad dude. Like what? He's being intentional. He's using the two words together. He is being redundant, which is the point. He uses the word despot in Greek. He's showing us that God has complete control over all things. In his mind, there's no rival to God. He is despot. Not only did he create everything, he is over all things. He has a plan and a purpose. And it says in verse 28 that to whatever your hand and your plan had predestined, had determined beforehand, pointing forward, saying, hey, I had this in my mind that Jesus would come, die on a cross and save you and rescue you. You see that plan? You see that purpose? They understood that God was in control of all things. So I want to ask you, What's happening in your life that seems to be outside God's control? I mean, what present suffering or temptation seems to be outside the bounds of God's purpose and plan for your life? Another way of saying it is this. Where are you consumed with doubt in God's love and ability to provide for you? He's given us a framework. He's saying, do you see it? Because here's the deal. If I was in jail overnight, I would probably not be coming up in here and being like, man, Jesus is awesome. I'd probably go, man, I don't want to get arrested again. Like, I mean, I might show up here. I might be a little gloom. You know what I mean? Like, think about it. They just got arrested and he comes in. He's like, let me tell you everything that's going on. Let's pray that the mission would go forward, right? And so it's this redemptive plan in everywhere. So this is true in my life. I know many of you have heard my testimony. I want to highlight a particular part in my story. So I was born um, in Macon, and I had a thing called, I can't even say it right, but tachycardia. I got some doctors in here, young to help me out, but it's tachycardia. My heart was through the roof. I was in the NICU for two months. They didn't know if I was going to make it, and um, I had this condition. I still have this heart condition where it, it comes up, every now and then, and my heart will skip a bead. Some think it's mitral valve prolapse, might be something a little different, but every now and then it comes up. Well, when I grew up, I grew up in Macon, Georgia. I went to an elementary school. It was the nicest elementary school in Macon, and I did not fit in. And, uh, and so I was looking for acceptance and love and all of those things. You've heard stories like this. Well, I get to middle school, I changed schools. I'd been to seven different schools in Macon, so I changed around a bunch. 
So I get to this school and I'm looking for anybody that will accept me. So what's the crowd that accepts me? The drug crowd and the partying crowd. I lost some weight, got a bunch of friends, started getting girlfriends, started getting excited, all this kind of stuff. And because I'm a seven, not because, but I am a seven. And so I love to have fun. So I went and I had fun. I got crazy. I was selling drugs at age 13 to all the rich kids at the golf club. That was my story. And finally, I come to the place where I'm in my house. Buddy comes over. We're going to do drugs together. We do drugs together. And in that moment, my heart had this reaction to this drug. And it was just coming through. The, I mean, it was just coming out of my chest. Beaten so hard. I thought I was going to die. I'm calling my mom, telling her everything. And I'm like, man, I need help. I don't think I'm going to make it. And then my heart would drop. And it would just go. I mean, I couldn't feel it anymore. And so I'm like sweating, losing my mind in the process. I cry out to God and I say, God, God, would you save me? And in that moment, I'm not asking for salvation. I'm asking, can I live another day? Age, I thought I was age 15 at this point. Okay. Crying out to God. My parents get there. They're thinking I'm, you know, we need to rush them to the hospital. I get through it. I don't eat for seven days. I mean, I was sick, sick. This girl calls me who had been calling me saying, hey, do you want to come to church? And I always said no. And that week I said, yeah, I'll come. I get saved. But think about that. Think about it. God, I had this heart problem. I had this issue from birth and it reared its ugly head on a specific day where I'm doing a specific drug and I end up coming to know Jesus. God saying, I love you. I had this plan all along in your life that this defect in your heart was my plan to save you forever. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is it in your life where you can go either God did that in my life or maybe God's doing it right now? Maybe God's saying, I'm using this situation in your life so that you can say, okay, God, I hear you. I'm listening. Enough. I get it. Okay. I submit. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to listen to you. I want to give my life to you. Maybe that's you this morning. If that's you, There's a redeemer who wants to save you. His name is Jesus. Is it possible that God is speaking to you this morning? Second thing that I see a gospel-centered worldview believes is this. A gospel-centered worldview believes that all of life is a mission field. All of life is a mission field. Look at this, verse 29. Remember, they just got out of jail, okay? And they've got threats. They've got all these people that are weighing in on them that are probably going to arrest them again. And listen to verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. Isn't that amazing? I mean, do you think like that? You got a heartache, you got problems, you got issues in your life, and they're going, hey, God, set us up. You know, tee us up to share the gospel. I know that person's mad at me right now. I know this situation's hard right now, but tee me up for the mission. They understood that God's mission was more important than their comfort. Verse 29. I don't know about you, but man, that is tough. That's tough. I mean, they were arrested, put on trial, warned to stuff their faith. I mean, it's time for a vacation, right? I mean, we need rest and recovery, right? Like I'm out for a few weeks, right? I'm not here. That was crazy. 
And they're saying, God, help us to speak your word with all boldness. They don't look to comfort. Instead, they see the greater picture. When things were tough, people don't act right. They press into the mission of God. In his book, uh, Peacemaker, I've talked about this book before, but I'm just going to keep giving it to you because it's a great book by Ken Sandy. He talks about conflict and he said, listen, when you're in conflict, especially with those who don't know Jesus, you have an opportunity to show them that your life has changed, that you used to scream at them, that you used to throw stuff, that you used to act like a fool, but now Jesus is working in your life. Not perfectly. You're still going to say stuff you shouldn't. You're still going to do stuff you shouldn't, but they're going to see a difference and they go, what's different about him? And all of a sudden, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of stress, there's an opportunity for the gospel. Do you pray like that? Do you think like that? Going, hey, God, I know my, my family's cray-cray, but God, what are you doing? What's some opportunities that I could have to share Christ, to exemplify Christ in my life? Have you considered that? Have you considered that the conflict you're in right now is an opportunity for the gospel to go forth? Do you think this way? This is what a gospel-centered worldview does. I mean, which situation are you in where you need to see that God's mission is greater than your comfort? Think about that. I do want to put a caveat here. There are situations where we do need to rest. There are situations where we do need to slow down. There are situations where this isn't a one-size-fits-all. I'll give you an example. We had a guy who uh, I was preaching in Orlando last week. I prayed for him in the service. His name's Tristan. He, uh, he did the Contagious Fun video. The, the guy who played um, college basketball, really fun guy. He, uh, his family lives in the Bahamas. And we were praying over his family as they were there. He had two cousins that died in the storm of Dorian. And so it was one of those moments where you do reflect, where you do sit back and where you do go, God, why? Like, what's going on? And I recognize that. I see it. As a matter of fact, I'm, book, I'm, I'm not writing. I'm reading a book called Recapturing the Wonder. I haven't read all of it, so I can't like recommend it completely, but I'm, I'm pretty far in. So Recapturing the Wonder, and this is what he says. In it, he talks about how suffering is a mystery. In our rationalistic society, we want to have answers for everything. In the book of Job, God doesn't give specific answers for Job's suffering. Instead, what does he do? He brings in the vastness of the world and essentially says that much in the world is a mystery that we can't comprehend. And so I recognize that there are situations where we do slow down, where we do receive help. Maybe say, think of it like this. Maybe sometimes where the gospel-centered ministry and mission is to those people, and maybe you're that person here. Maybe you're not the one going out. Maybe you're the one that needs to receive that love and that care from the body. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, they understood that God's mission was more important than their safety. That God's mission was more important than their safety. Think about that. I mean, how many times have you gone on a mission trip? The number one focus is that you would be safe. Think about it. We're not even going on a mission trip. We're going on a vacation. What do we bring up in our small group? Hey, pray that we would get to the beach safely, right? What do we pray constantly for our family members? That we would be safe. 
that everything would be okay in our lives, right? That's generally the way we pray often. I know I do. I pray that way a lot, right? The apostles didn't think this way. Think about that. They just got arrested. They're getting threats. What do they pray? While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are being performed through your name, for, through your Holy Spirit. Holy servant Jesus. It's crazy. We don't pray this way. We don't think this way, right? I mean, how many times has someone wronged you, upset you, and you pray for vengeance and justice? The apostles see a bigger picture. It's not that that's never the case, but they see a bigger picture in the mission of God. They see that God's mission is more important than their safety and personal vendettas. They pray for God to heal and to perform signs and wonders. God says, my mission, not your mission, is what matters when you suffer. It's like a resounding gong. It's like an amplified speaker in everybody's eyes that Jesus is Lord. Think about that. This requires a different lens, a different perspective on our lives. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, this is crazy, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Y'all see that mission-driven mindset? So I'm going to ask you to join with me in this last little subpoint. Here's what I want you to do. My last subpoint is this. They understood that God's mission was too big to accomplish on their own. What did they do? They got down together and they prayed. And they cried out to God. And they said, God, would you move in us? Would you change us? And would you change everyone around us? Would your mission go forth? So I'm gonna ask everyone in this room to join me in that. So what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to have a posture before God in prayer. And so I want you to get up. You can turn around and face on your chair. I want you to get on your knees and I want you to pray to God with me this morning for God to move, for God to move in Central Florida, for God to move in our lives and to see him do a great work. And so if you get on your knees with me, if you're able, if you have room, Father God, we we just come before you and recognize that you are here. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in this room today. God, that you would start with us, Lord. And so everyone in here, I wanna lead you through some prayers. What is happening in your life that seems to be outside God's control right now? Would you talk to God about that? What is broken in your life that needs redeeming? Give that to God this morning. What situation are you in where you need to see that God's mission is greater than your comfort? God, I pray that you would break us 
that you would open us up, that we would see that you have a mission and that it's bigger than us. It's even bigger than this room. God, would you set up opportunities in our conflict, in our messy lives to present Christ? God, whether that's in person or inviting them to church, we've got fall kickoff coming. God, we're asking that you would move in Central Florida. We're asking that you would move in our hearts and that you would boil us up to where we would say, we can't do this anymore. We need your help and we wanna help others know the love and the acceptance that we've received. And so God, if, if, if the person in this room right now is broken and they need you, would they give their lives to you? But out of this, God, would we go forth and not look at our safety and our comfort, but we would look at you. And we would say we want others to know you and to trust you and to love you. Help us, God. We love you and we thank you for your grace and your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.